Welcome to Lives, a show exploring our experiences in the world and how we might live well. I'm Stuart Chittenden, and my guest today is Christian Gray, the Executive Director of In Common Community Development. In the show, we talk about housing as a human right and the nature of the American dream. Gray also shares how the pursuit of a life of faith and purpose drives his passion for community development. Fall in love, stay in love, and the rest will follow. Very simple. There's something about, you know, seeing people and getting to know their stories and getting to know their names and connecting with them that makes you care. Um, I think that that's how we began the work of addressing some of the, the challenges and the, the injustices that we see is, is not because it's an ideological problem, but because there's real people that we now know and that their stories now compel us to move forward because we want better for them. Christian Gray was born and raised on the sunny beaches of Southern California. For university, he moved to Tucson, Arizona, where he completed his undergrad in communications and, more importantly, met his future partner, Sonia. He has worked in the field of national and international community development for 18 years and has served in the role of executive director at In Common Community Development since 2006. Gray's passion for community development led him to pursue advanced studies at the University of Nebraska at Omaha where he earned a double master's in urban studies and public administration. Gray is also actively engaged in the civic life of his community, including being this year's recipient of Leadership Omaha's Linda Schaefer's Distinguished Alumni Award. Christian Gray, welcome to Lives. Thank you so much for having me, Stuart. So I want to start with a broad question, which is, how do you characterize that ethos or um, aspiration that is the American dream? Very, very tiny question here to get us started. Um, you know, I, I think I would say that the general conception of that must be life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. How does that show up then, do you think, for you and the community that you see around you? Yeah, I mean, it, there's something about... Um, self-determination that is important to the American dream, I think. Um, I think we all have determined, not to continue to repeat that same word over and over again, but that that's an essential component of what it, it means to be American is that we can we can make our own choices. Uh, we have these liberties to pursue life as we see fit and um, I think, you know, going going to sort of my work and my focus on my daily life, it's 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 really trying to ensure that that's extended to populations and communities that might miss out on that um, or might not be naturally granted that. Uh, oftentimes, I think sometimes, um, so I, I work in lower income communities, and I think sometimes when we're thinking about lower-income neighbors, we're thinking, um, we're not really thinking about freedom of choice and liberty. We're thinking about basic needs, and um, maybe, you know, for for the terrible turn of phrase, beggars can't be choosers, you know, uh, but I think that's crucial for 
every everybody in our community that we have self-determination that we're able to direct um, where we live where our kids go to school the type of meals we eat um, the way that we practice faith I mean it extends so much it's not a socioeconomic idea it's a it's a all people idea I like that you've drawn a distinction between pure socioeconomic factors and that broader ethos that speaks to the American dream, these issues of life, liberty, and happiness. <clears throat> Would you speak a little bit to the work that In Common Community Development does and perhaps setting the stage a little bit with some of the history to the organization too? Yeah, great. Um, so, you know, when I talk about income, I, I love to start with what we believe. And in common, we believe that no one should have to face a lifetime of poverty simply because of the zip code that they're born into. Um, so it's a, it's really, if we, were to, if we were to pin it down into a nutshell, in common is about geographical equity. Um, uh, the five digits that conclude someone's mailing address shouldn't be a limiting factor in their future success. Um, and we see that all throughout literature and research, it's called the neighborhood effect. Um, we, there's something sticky that remains on us dependent upon our zip code. It's, it's, it's one of the most influential parts of, of our upbringing. So, um, yeah, so we're about working with local residents, developing local leadership um, so that neighbors themselves are making the change to create a strong, healthy, thriving environment for their own kids and families. And uh, we are 21, 22 years old. Um, we um, we started as part of a church, um, a, a, a young church that was downtown in Omaha, those uh, early 2000s. And um, I think it was, I wasn't around. I was, I moved here from California, as you mentioned in the bio. But um, uh, the church was unique, I think, in that it was um, really, really trying to put itself in a, in a place on the margins, right? I think sometimes it's easy to think about the economics of church, unfortunately. So you, you go in places where you can pay the bills, right? This this church took a different path, and as as they're opening their doors up to uh, folks on the margin, they realized that they needed um, a nonprofit arm of the church in order to address some of the more practical needs around them, um, their own congregants. So that developed into what became called Mosaic Community Development, and we rebranded um, a handful of years later as In Common Community Development. I heard someone share with me recently the frustration around poverty and their comment was how do you even begin to make a dent in something as challenging and as large as poverty so to some degree i'm thinking about scale how is in common going about sort of chipping away mm -hmm. at this amelioration of poverty at a neighborhood by neighborhood level mm, that's great yeah I mean, I think um, I think there's a title of a book called um, "You Know Small Is Bigger" or something to that effect. This idea that uh, you know sometimes the, the the smaller acts actually create larger impacts, and um, I like to think that that's kind of been our focus. Uh, we we focus in two specific neighborhoods, um, so instead of trying to serve as many people broadly as possible, we tried to go as um, deeply and. Uh, you know, holistically as possible. Um, and what really compels me with this neighborhood level intervention of the work is it is it really positions us, I think, for creating change on a generational level. 
um, if we're able to work with current residents and um, work together to create stronger neighborhoods where future generations are growing up, then we're not um, sort of just putting a Band-Aid on the issue, but we're actually attacking it at the root level where um, we're addressing it where it lives. And, you know, I think that's I think that's important. I think that's compelling. It kind of reminds me of that analogy of of sort of the the sink, right, with the open drain. We keep pouring water down this drain and we're trying to increase the pre- the water pressure, but it, it still goes down the drain. We got to plug that up somehow. And, um, you know, maybe it'll take a while to still fill the the um, the tub or the, the basin up. But eventually, you know, if we make the right type of strategic decisions and, and um, res- place the resources in that way, eventually I think that'll catch up in a good way. On uh, your website, and I've read this elsewhere, describing the work you do, there are a couple of phrases that make sense if you know urban studies, but perhaps not to the, the person not informed or um, you know academically minded around this work. And those phrases are, uh, your work involves social capital formation within vulnerable neighborhoods and asset-based neighborhood development. What does that mean in terms of um, you know language that the listener could perhaps understand, and perhaps you could give uh, you know an example out of the work that Incommon does in Omaha that speaks to those particular phrases? Yes. So um, yeah, those are great questions, and those are on our website. Wow, we gotta we gotta um, we gotta make our website a little bit more accessible <laughs> to the the average reader. Uh, those are some some specific terms, but. Um, you know, I think they do capture what we do well in terms of social capital formation. Um, we're, you know, many folks are familiar with uh, the, the the book Bowling Alone from a from a handful of years back, and this idea that uh, society has, has sort of lost this social capital, or a, you know, that's a fancy term for relationships, and um, really having those relationships that support us, whether they're familial relationships or they're bridging relationships to opportunities. Um, but we used to be structured uh, in other ways, in different ways that really used to enhance that or support that. And we've, we've seen that decline um, over the years. And so uh, really, um, in, in a lot of research we've read, that's really critical. It may be even more critical in lower income neighborhoods. Um, we can oftentimes isolate people in lower income neighborhoods and disconnect them from other opportunities and resources. So we feel like it's it's critical for both those types of social capital relationships to form that our neighbors have really good relationships with their neighbors. There's a sense of uh, camaraderie that supports things we've seen in terms of um, uh, you know um, civic engagement in a neighborhood, a sense of uh, safety in a neighborhood. These are a lot of um, things that spill out of good relationships. And then in terms of these bridging relationships, we want to de-isolate people from um, from opportunities. Uh, you know, a lot of people I talk to, I'm sure yourself as well, the way we got into our job, at least one of them was because of someone that we knew. Someone recommended us, somebody um, highlighted the opportunity for us. And so we oftentimes are limited by the people that we know. And it's really crucial that um, lower income people have those broader networks of, of people around them. In terms of asset-based community development, that's just a fancy way of saying um, strength-based community development, and that might be as core as anything to Incommon's mission. Um, basically, what it's what it's getting after is that um, lower-income neighborhoods aren't uh, aren't incapable of 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 bringing uh, many things to the table towards change. Um, they're not um, they're not dependent on uh, all kinds of outside resources. Um, 
there is there's internal capacities at bear to really create a pathway forward um, of strength and uh, really you know our our simple role at in common is to identify those strengths and to um, catalyze those strengths uh, they're there they're internal with the neighborhoods um, the great strength of any neighborhood are the people themselves there are amazing people in all of our neighborhoods who have incredible talents gifts and abilities and um, I think the best thing that we can do in community development is to identify who those people are and to really um, encourage and enhance and highlight their ability to, to create change. The author of the book you mentioned, Bowling Alone, is Robert Putnam. Mm-hmm. And a few years ago, he visited mm-hmm. Omaha, and I remember seeing him speak, and he made reference to communities suffering from a shriveled sense of we. Mm-hmm. And I read a quote that you shared in an interview a while ago where you highlighted the work of Dr. Robert Lupton of FCS Urban Ministries, who said that the single greatest cause for sustained poverty is isolation. And given everything you've just been describing, it feels as if coming together as neighbors is the way that those communities can, as it were, build up to and live into the American dream in whatever form that takes for that community and the members of that community. It takes me then to a question for you about what does community actually mean and what does it mean for you as you try to, as it were, um, not necessarily intervene perhaps, but coax um, a thriving community out of one that perhaps does have a shriveled sense of we. So, So what does community mean? Yeah, I think I think community for me at least means um, there's a there's a social aspect of it and a geographical aspect to it, and I think those two relate. Um, I think that kind of sometimes becomes the debate: is it is it geographical or is it social? And um, I think those things aren't to be disconnected. I think there's something really important about the the shared space of life where we create community and we um, experience life together. Uh, I think maybe we've We've lost some of that along the way um, in terms of an individualism, um, in terms of, you know, we've, we've all heard the sort of this idea of, you know, pulling into our, our uh, double car garage and walking through our garage into our house, not being able to wave at a neighbor. Um, there's something lost in that. And so I think I think community is really trying to, um, I guess, recalibrate or recommodify things beyond just kind of the economics of life or just beyond the um, individuality of life, but this commodity of life where um, we get to share life together, we need each other, um, uh, this this uh, intercultural type of community experience. Um, um, yeah, there, there's something in, in beauty and, and purpose that we need each other for um, that community really addresses. So your work is proactive. Is there an argument that we shouldn't be intervening? We should just be allowing markets and social forces to take their own uh, progression and communities will develop and thrive or not, depending upon those forces mm-hmm. without intervention. Yeah, I think, I think, the, um, I think there's a market failure at, at place in that because the market doesn't care about... Um, things outside of the economics of life. Uh, so we, um, it, can't, it can't solve all problems, it can't address all problems, and it, it certainly um, doesn't really care about the, oftentimes about the most vulnerable in society. Um, we have to 
recalibrate things and adjust things and reorientate things so that folks aren't missed in for the holistic sense of life to not be overlooked. Uh, economics is one of those things. The market can provide some of those things, um, uh, but certainly not even half. Uh, so you were raised on the sunny shores of California. Mm-hmm. So what was community like for you as a child? You know, I'm a, I'm a suburban beach kid. So, um, you know, we, uh, gosh, I, I, I'm trying to figure out how to equate that here to um, my Omaha life. But this, you know, this would, I guess, yeah, just equating it to the suburban way of life. Um, um, I knew my immediate neighbors, but I, I don't know if there was a real sense of connection um, throughout the neighborhood or the a sense of identity. This is where um, I'm from, particularly in Orange County, uh, which which was the, the sunny beaches I'm from. There's so many different mini cities. Um, it's really difficult to understand um, how to make change and how to be a part of something because it's it's all commingled together. So. That's one of the things that um, my wife and I really have loved about Omaha. It's, it's something we can wrap our heads around. We, we can see the, the course and the pathway towards change. Um, we, there's a sense of identity that we get to share with our fellow Omahans. And, um, yeah, and I, you know, I think like many folks who might have grown up in a suburban uh, sort of arrangement, like there's something really compelling about urban life. Um, the... Uh, you know, the diversity, um, both ethnically and socioeconomically, which is um, just amazing. Culturally, um, I, I think the density of having a lot of people around you, so there's a sense of, you know, vibrancy and uh, movement. Um, yeah, so that's, I think, I think shifting from kind of what I grew up t- from to something that seems a little bit more real, at least in this, you know, particular era of my life. What are some of the memories that stand out to you from being that urban Californian kid? What did you get up to? Um, so I, I watched TV. <laughs> um, uh, I did grow up um, doing a lot of, uh, you know, sort of sports, uh, surfing and skateboarding and kind of the California uh, sports scene. Um, uh, but yeah, you know, I don't know, like when you when you grow up in a, like a, a kind of a cul-de-sac community, there's there's um, there can be limited interactions and limited um, touch points. So yeah, I think I think a pretty standard kind of uh, upbringing. But uh, you know, you include the beach in that, and it, I think it paints the right picture. So when did this sense of community, as it were, it emerge for you? I'm, I'm wondering about what it was in your early life that moved your passion and your vocation towards this idea that community meant more than just the experiences you'd had as a child and it meant something that needed to be attended to by you. Was there an epiphany or some slow burn to that realization? That's a great question. I think, so I I think I've, um, if I was to kind of connect the dots in my past, maybe a common theme would be um, I've been for the underdog. So I think that would be one of the themes which would have led me to, um, you know, an interest in the work that I do now and in an interest in um, really participating in solutions that uproot poverty. So I think I think if we, we look at it from that angle, then it becomes more of a methodological um, 
consideration or a, or a, a utility in some ways of how do we how do we get after that? And I think uh, the history of the United States, the history of the world, has shown that um, we haven't made much headway in poverty alleviation. Um, we've taken it's come by fits and bursts, but there's something there's something that we haven't figured out. And uh, maybe it can't be mechanic. Whatever word I'm trying to say there, uh, manipulated or or sorted together, um, you know, by force. Maybe it has softer edges than that, and and I think that's one of the things that community just speaks to me in terms of poverty alleviation is that we aren't um, we aren't to be fixed, um, and we're created for something greater and bigger. Um, that we need each other, that we're not independent. So I think it, I think it was in some ways just pragmatic. Like, how do we get after this? issue of poverty alleviation and um what does it mean like what what is if if um what does it mean to be um someone who's struggling in poverty and and what might that require that was different than my experience and um because i do think people who have economic means can be more independent i think it's just a it's just sort of a, a choice that that we can make but but folks that um the more i got to know people who who were struggling in poverty it seemed like two things I was noticing. I think I was attracted to one is um, there was a maybe a, a tighter sense of community that they they celebrated and they appreciated more than I did, and I was drawn to that. And then also a, a sense of maybe that came because of of need. Maybe that started out not because of choice, but because um, there was a sense of needing each other um, that I, I thought was a valuable lesson for me to delve into at a deeper level. I think that last comment is really fascinating because you've shared publicly elsewhere that your childhood was not necessarily uncomfortable. It, we're not necessarily talking about grand wealth, but but it was pretty middle class suburban mm-hmm. upbringing. And you also talked about having this affinity for the underdog. Mm-hmm. But there are many people in the world for a variety of reasons who are passing poverty by because there are other pressures or whatever the reason is. And I'm, I I wanted to dig further into the question about why do you care? Mm-hmm. And you started to speak to that a little bit, I think, about encountering something um, that was perhaps a little more worthy and noble mm-hmm. in, in the experiences you had with people that perhaps mm-hmm. were struggling a little bit, um, but also there was a pathway to pursue something, I think, again, to borrow from the American dream, something towards that for everybody. Mm-hmm. So what were some of these early experiences in where you did start to encounter that? Mm-hmm. For example, I know that you've traveled the world looking at um, uh, uh, poverty in places like Romania, India, South Africa. So what were some of these experiences where uh, these uh, circumstances were being revealed to you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think if I was to start at the very beginning of that story, I would, I would start with faith, um, and I would start with um, growing up in a Christian context in a Christian church, and and maybe not really hearing too often about the marginalized and the world's vulnerable, and then um, having some good friends uh, kind of open up the Bible for me in a new way to really show me. Um, God's love for all people and in him being uh, on the side of the poor in some ways, like there being a real um, preferential option for the poor, as I think is, as some Catholic traditions call it. And um, I was just, I was blown away by that. And it really um, compelled me 
towards a deeper sense of faith that was an active faith and uh, a worshipful faith where um, I begin to see poverty as a um, maligning of, of God's intent for people. And um, um, and yeah, so that, that led me to taking on a number of opportunities to kind of see the world and to um, sort of touch it, touch that and feel that in some ways. And uh, I mean, I think, gosh, there's, um, you know, one of my favorite quotes um, I mentioned quite often is by um, a Jesuit. Um, I'm trying to recall his name, um, but it'll come to me. But he says that um, uh, fall in love, stay in love, and the rest will follow. Very simple. Fall in love, stay in love, and the rest will follow. And there's something about like, you know, seeing people and getting to know their stories and getting to know their names and connecting with them that makes you care. Um, I think that that's how we begin the work of addressing some of the the challenges and the the injustices that we see is is not because it's an ideological problem, but because there's real people that we now know and that um, they their stories now compel us to move forward because we want better for them. Uh, so that was, I think that was some of the the early sort of experiments with it. And then I, I think it kind of goes back to that idea of asset-based community development. Then I think the, the great surprise, um, it shouldn't be a surprise, but I think it, it can be, is that um, there there's something that, uh, we all bring to the table and we need each other, right? So um, middle-class Americans don't have everything. Um, they don't, we don't have, um, you know, I, we went, we talked about relationships. I think we, we lack um, oftentimes real deep uh, connected relationships. And I think um, folks in different cultures and different upbringings uh, with different challenges and circumstances can show us something that we're missing and invite us into a different way. And hopefully through that exchange, we, we both gain. Um, and that's really how I like to see the type of work that In Common does and um, what it's like to share life with people is is there has to be some sort of exchange. It's not otherwise we get into paternalism, right? So there needs to be a sense, a real belief and commitment that when we get across the table from somebody, we equally have something to offer and to contribute and to gain, and um, that creates a, a meaningful exchange and relationship. So certainly, faith informs and influences your passion and your work. Although, in common itself, is a secular organization. As I understand it, yeah, we uh, we are no longer directly connected to that church. Um, I think we still have a lot of faith motivational uh, components, rootings, but yeah, by definition, that's connected to a church. I don't know if the situation is better now than it was ten years ago, or twenty years ago, or thirty years ago, and it makes me then want to ask if you ever have a crisis of faith mm. if you're not seeing mm -hmm. the work make the kind mm -hmm. of change that you want it to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. Um, well, you know, thankfully we have seen change. I mean, the nice thing about uh, the long route uh, and the long investment in a place like Park Avenue, which is one of the two neighborhoods we're focused in, we've been there the longest. Um, we've seen, we do track things like the the higher level um data of what's happening community-wide. And so we're seeing increased graduation rates, um, uh, decreased crime rates, such and such forth. So we uh, we do get to witness um, the changes. It's, it's obviously difficult to pinpoint the the origin of those changes. And, and you 
you hope that your work is contributing to that. But, um, you know, we have seen some really positive changes. Uh, I, and I would say in terms of like if we didn't, it wouldn't be a matter of uh, becoming, I don't think, for me at least, um, and I'm an eternal optimist, um, uh, but um, uh, sort of doubting the work or doubting the mission, but it's really just a, a, a retooling of the logic model, of the strategy. Um, there's a way for it. I mean, there has to be a way forward. Um, and we, we have to find the way forward. And that's one of the things, that's one of the four values of In Common is creativity. We uh, we build from best practices, and we but we know that the, the answer hasn't been solved. The, the Rubik's Cube hasn't been completed. Um, and we need to explore different ways to solve the issue. So we, we, we work the hardest we can. We track the data. We look at what's been accomplished. And if, if for what's working, we continue forward. For what's not, we have to retool. And um, But it's, it's crucial that we never give up on this fight to ensure that every kid has an opportunity to grow up healthy uh, and well in their neighborhood. That gives me an opportunity to segue into a film that was screened at Film Streams just the other evening. And In Common was collaborating as a community partnership with film streams locally to screen the film push and it was followed by a post-screening community discussion um, and the film itself explores the increasing unlivability of cities mm -hmm. that beyond gentrification is caused by the dehumanizing of housing in favor of its commodification by global financial markets mm -hmm. and players i think many people might be surprised to know that the main uh, protagonist, as it were, in the film, which is a documentary, is the UN Special Rapporteur for Housing. Mm -hmm. And that housing, adequate housing, is an article of the United Nations uh, Declaration around, Universal Declaration around Human Rights. It feels really large to paint it in that broader brush. How does that human right to adequate housing operate at a local level. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, you know, I think what's helpful about that definition um, of us pinpointing or agreeing upon it, housing being a human right, is it is it elevates the um, elevates the emergency or the, the critical nature of housing. And it begins to uh, have us challenge some of our our preconceptions about housing being provided through the market and that's that's how we deal with housing in our community if it's if it is in fact a human right or if we can even get to the place where we say that it's a it's a critical basic need that everybody needs which is i guess a, a human right um uh, then we we need to really um observe what's happening and who's being left out because it's no longer a um yeah, it's not. It's no longer something that just someone can put up with or do without. So I think I think starting from the place of at least the definition, this is a human right. Everybody needs this, and I think one of the connection points, easy connection points to housing as a human right, is just simply um, this idea that it provides the basic human rights of safety and security. Um, so we can connect it to other things that we understand and that we value. Um, but for some reason, because we've just been oriented around the market providing housing. We've, we've lost sight, I think, a little bit in terms of the importance of the critical nature of it. You were talking earlier a little bit about the creativity mm -hmm. being a value of in common and having to adapt to changing circumstances. And one of the changing circumstances that this film demonstrated is that there is a complete global financial system 
that is geared towards the commodification of housing as an asset class and therefore stripping away the, the human mm-hmm. side of it as a home. Uh, so I'm, I'm just wondering if, given those large forces, if, if you find it just a little mm-hmm. bit dismaying, or what it is you are doing to leverage that creativity value that you shared to tackle this in a way that has real impact at a small local scale. Yeah, so I do, I do think you know um, there there are number there are a number of levels when it comes to housing, and you're mentioning the global challenges of it. And I think um, you know realistically. Uh, there, there are limited things that that I or maybe most folks on a daily basis can do regarding those global realities. I think awareness and, and, and uh, elevating the conversation are helpful. Um, but I think it comes down to a couple things. One is if we, uh, you know, we have, you know, we talked about self determination earlier. We are self determined beings, at least, at least um, folks who are in the middle class or higher, who have choices in terms of where they live and who they buy from and who they rent from. Um, so I think that's one easy way that we can approach this, uh, asking the question, if we're a renter, who owns this building? Um, is it an LLC that I can't sort of connect the dots to and and trace uh, the lineage to? Is it is it um, a local developer who has a good reputation? What is it? And I think that's that's critical. If we're going to, you know, if we're going to fight market forces with market forces, um, in terms of sales, this was brought up at the panel discussion um, at Push as well. But would we be willing to take a you know a few dollars less for the sale of our home to sell it to the the person that we think was most interested or um, on the side of of enhancing and, and making the community stronger rather than maybe an LLC or or someone who's disconnected the community? Uh, I, I think these are really important. I don't think they cost us that much i don't think these are altruistic uh, in a mega way i think these are um these are just choosing between options a and b and as as, as consumers this is i think uh, the least we can do um but they're also at a local level there are a lot of ways in terms of 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 furthering affordable housing there are a lot of creative creative solutions that we can get on board with and that in is trying to get on board with even now um in terms of just increasing production of affordable housing, preserving existing affordable housing, um, uh, creating a, a broad array of options for affordable housing from renter occupancy to uh, home ownership opportunities. Um, there are a lot of tools that have worked you know, in different communities. And that's one thing, coming from California, we we'll go back there for a second to Omaha. Um, Omaha has a great opportunity that we can, we can pop our head up and we can look, you know, we can do a, a 360 degree turn and just look across the country and see what's happening. And, you know, uh, five, 10 years um, ahead of us in some ways uh, in terms of advancements, but in terms of problems, we can see problems coming. Um, many of us have been talking about uh, um, a worry about gentrification in Omaha for years. Um, uh, f- a lot of times folks didn't believe that, but I think we're seeing that in, in some really profound ways. And, and that wasn't because anybody was a magician um, or a fortune teller, it was just observing what was happening uh, throughout the the rest of the United States. And there are some there are some great tools and some great um, uh, leverages that that other folks are pulling in their communities to make some change that we can really make here as well. Is there a story that you you lean on when you think, oh, this this is why this work matters? Mm. Yeah, I mean, so I live, my family and I live in Park Avenue. Um, 
And we, um, you know, Parkey Avenue historically, or at least over the last decade or two, has a 30% poverty rate, um, about a 50% uh, childhood poverty rate. We have about almost a 90% renter occupancy rate, and we're the we have the greatest population density of all of Omaha. We have a a lot of interesting dynamics happening. We're also um, historically a, a very um, ethnically and socially economically diverse community, and um, over the past decade. We have seen the neighborhood change um, at, at in really aggressive ways, and so I, I you know, I forever will recall um, just outside of off of our front porch, there's a um, a fourplex apartment building that we, um, a, a, a friends of ours, a Latino family was living there. Um, it got. Uh, bought out by a new developer who moved everyone out, gave them 30 days notice, um, um, rehabbed it, you know, put it back on the market, right? And, it, and the, the neighbors don't look anything like they did before. Um, uh, they're, and not to um, sort of put a, like a, a socioeconomic um, identifier on any ethnicity, but for our particular neighborhood, a lot of our lower income neighbors were Latino, and uh, that meant this apartment building. Um, it, there were every Friday night there was a um, a taco um, party uh, that a neighbor would make tacos on her porch, and uh, neighbors from all around the neighborhood would come and buy some tacos and sit on the porch. And we couldn't communicate sometimes. We um, we didn't know each other, each other's name at times, like, but it was a, a gathering spot. There's a sense of vibrancy, a sense of, um, I mean, there's, it doesn't look like that anymore. And it, it breaks my heart. There's a, a particular photo in my head of um, one of our neighbors um, standing on the front porch of this fourplex moving with his, his father and the stairs are no longer there. These concrete stairs or wood stairs, I can't recall at this time, they were, um, they were knocked out while they were still living there, um, the, the remodeling, the renovations had already been taking place before they could even get out. They were handing boxes down over a, a concrete ledge. Um, that's how they had to move. And um, I just, it's just such a sense of loss. It's a sense of, um, I mean, there's a lot of emotions that come up from a, from a justice perspective. Like this, this isn't just how you treat humans. This is wrong to a, a quality of life. Like our quality of life was better and um, it's no longer what it was. Uh, you know, we were, we were thinking for some time, like we were ready to move out. Um, when you lose, when you have that kind of loss, and this was just one example of, of, a, of a network of losses um, that really changed the quality of life for us and for our neighbors. Um, there's a lot of amazing people there. Um, it's, there's still a lot to, to love, but it, it was a really hard time where you, it was a gut punch and, I'll always remember that that mental image, and I'll always remember how that company treated that family, and um, it's just not right. What about the story of success? Yes. <laughs> so we, we saw a number of these stories throughout the years, um, and so in 2015, InCommon bought a apartment complex called the Bristol Apartments. It's on Park Avenue in Mason area. It's 65 units of housing. Uh, we bought it because we were desperate to see our neighbors be able to remain in the community. Uh, then we bought a another apartment behind it called the Georgia Row Apartments. If you're driving on along I-480, um, it looks like a, a brick um, castle. And so those are in process as we speak of, of renovation. There'll be um, quality 
historic affordable housing for our neighbors. Um, so that's a victory. I mean, the, the real victory, when grand opening hits in 2023, that's where really I think where we'll feel the sense of victory. Um, but just it, it's been such a long, arduous prods process to get this, um, get the funding for this this project. So we cannot wait. I mean, it's it's going to provide housing for over 100 neighbors. Um, not only is this the humane thing to do, but just in terms of meeting our mission in common, if we are about um, identifying and cultivating local leadership and our local leaders can't stay in the neighborhood because they can't afford it or they get pushed out, then we can't we can't meet our mission. And if we can't meet our mission, then we're not tackling root level poverty at the neighborhood level. And so um, we're very, very excited to see this come into play. Um, it was a long road, but um, it's an exciting day for us. I think the pandemic <laughs> revealed and illuminated, I think, many of the challenges that poverty had rendered amongst our communities. And it really just threw a, a really stark light on those community level inequities, as well as the system based challenges. I'm wondering what you saw um, happen mm. because of the pandemic, what was revealed by the pandemic? Mm. Uh, yeah, I mean, the I think one of the, the most stark differences I saw was the difference between people who could work from home and the people who couldn't, the people who had to um, put their health in situations of vulnerability and, and those of us that got to protect ourselves. That was certainly one of those things. Um, I, I saw severe illness. I saw death as a result of um, the vulnerabilities of people not having, you know, I guess that's the theme for our discussion today, self-determination, not being able to have that that um, sort of liberty to make those decisions in terms of where I can work and where and how can I best protect my family. Um, those those decisions were removed. Uh, that ranging all the way from food insecurity, right? Like some of us were shopping. We just changed the way we shopped and we had people deliver it to our porches, um, but we're still eating the same. And uh, and others really were facing um, food insecurity, even even in this, you know, day of inflation. It's it's, you know, it's just it's, you know, it's regressive, right? All these things are regressive. They, they hit people without the means, the hardest. Um, so those were a couple of things. But in terms of some of the the celebrations, I mean, I think one of my favorite times from that um, that season was one of our neighbors, um, uh, one of our partner churches was doing food deliveries, and um, and one of our neighbors was benefiting from that service. And it, it it occurred to her, hey, I have a lot of neighbors who don't know about this service, and so she became a kind of an advocate for this. Um, and sh we were able to bring her on for a part-time employment opportunity where her, her sole purpose um, in that job was to reach out to her neighbors to let them know about this free food service. So she would she would just make sure that her neighbors were benefiting from this. So there was, a, a, you know, maybe that's going back to this idea of social capital too, right? Like how do we do in-reach into homes when we, um, just by data alone, it, it becomes very difficult. But if we know names and if we know people, um, we have access, so there, there, there are some tremendous victories. Um, but yeah, that the regression is, is difficult at times. How did you cope professionally and personally? What was happening for you and your family? Yeah, I mean, we we uh, get to make those those choices of self determination. So I think that was one of the things. I, um, it, you know, I think this was hard for a lot of middle income people and, and upper middle income people, I imagine, to wrestle with in terms of, um, you know, some of us needed a break from work. 
in you know in in common just the ways that we began, we were doing work was completely different a lot of it was virtual we were doing education virtually and our community centers were were closed um, physically and it just changed um, it changed where we were working and you know so yeah that that was a, a time of reflection of yeah the the inequity um, even that I experienced relative to my neighbors who lived five houses away it was a it was a difficult time in that regard, but uh, um, yeah, also a, a change of pace that I think was was helpful. I've been in, in this job for a bit, so um, in some ways, having a little bit of a, a break from the norm, um, you know, working from the porch was was nice. Is there something from the pandemic that you're mm-hmm. taking forward? I'm just curious mm-hmm. if there's as horrible as it is to think about silver linings that you're pursuing. Yeah, I think I think so. I mean, I think the accessibility to programs has been really broadened for our work um we you know our community centers and our work is very localized so we've we've really um tried to position ourselves in terms of like a you know a front door access um people should hopefully be able to walk to the center um but even you know from the pandemic broadening the way that we do some of those things for folks who do have mobility challenges or, um, you know, other health vulnerabilities. Uh, so we, you know, like a lot of other organizations, we can do this, this, um, this hybrid form of, of programming. Um, so that's been really helpful. Um, yeah, that's probably the, the biggest learning. I think, I think the reinforcement of how critical housing is and how that is the, the foundation for safety and stability, um, um, and yeah, all, all all the more importance of being able to get good quality housing online for people, so that they have that um, that stability during these really difficult seasons is is also brought to light. We've talked about mm-hmm. the phrase social capital, um, and you boiled it down to strong relationships. Mm-hmm. The difficulty with having strong relationships is that can be so tiring. <laughs> <clears throat> yes, and that's your job. So how are you? coping with the demand of a job and also a personal life where you are committed to this community, how are you coping with maintaining the energy and the passion to keep doing and pursuing this vocation? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, we talked about uh, 2020 and the pandemic. Um, you know, it, in light, the other side of that coin, working from home um, largely was a, a, a deep sense of isolation as we all felt um, and disconnectedness. And I think with that, um, I was I was struck pretty strongly with the sense of burnout. There was something that life, the life force was running out of me as, um, as I'm sure a lot of people experienced. Um, there's something really important about seeing people and, and seeing change. I, I, I think maybe I'm just like anybody else, but um, what keeps me in this and what keeps me from burning out is just seeing amazing people do amazing things um, that um, they might not have had the opportunity to do otherwise. Um, it's those those stories, and they don't even have to be huge success stories. You know, we you know one of the fun things that we get to see is people become U.S. citizens, but that's a long road, like, and that's a handful of people every year. But um, you know, it's the next step to that U.S. citizenship. It's that next step to. Um, uh, you know your GED, GED degree, which typically it ends in the the last test of mathematics. Which um, you know, once you get over that hump, you, you're you're there. But uh, you know, it's it's really the people brighten up 
right? Like to see people brightened up, the eyes of people brightened up, to see people around them, celebrate them and to, um, I don't know, we, we just always, we just all want to know that we are, we matter, that we can do it, that we're, we, we need to be able to surprise ourselves that we've accomplished something that we didn't think we could. Like anybody else, I need to see that in folks around me. I think that's what really compels me and moves me. I want to read a quote to you that is from an interview you gave probably a decade ago, not quite a decade ago now. And so you said, I think the purpose of life is to live wholly and richly. It means you're an authentic person and you care about other people and you're part of a greater global community and humanity. I think that's the purpose of life, to really be a part of enriching the global community. So here we are, and I'm wondering, do you still believe that? Do you still recognize that? Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, we're created for each other. Uh, If we want to go back to kind of what compels me in terms of that faith grounding, like I I believe that there's a purpose for uh, us being on the planet, and I don't think it is to sort of get through this with the, with these least bumps and bruises and scars that we can. I think it's about caring for each other. Many of us are familiar with this idea of the greatest commandment, uh, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the other is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. The other is like it. The other is um, very similar to it. The other is, is uh, cannot be removed um, or broken apart from it, and that is loving our neighbor as ourselves. So um, that's what we're designed to do. That's why we're here. That's... Um, that's how we uh, live out um, a, a worship of God um, and a purpose of life. And I can't think of anything more important to do. And I think, you know, that's the whole deathbed kind of discussion, right? Nobody says they wish they worked more. What You know, all those things that we've heard, like it's all about who did we invest in. And, um, and I don't think it's just about investing in our own flesh and blood. Um, I think that sometimes we get caught up and in, in that's what it's, what it's about. And that's certainly important. I think it's investing in um, you know our, our broader brothers and sisters around us um, locally globally I think that's what it is and I and I and even as I'm talking about it, I'm like well of course everybody thinks that right my guest today has been Christian gray the co-executive director of in common community development. Christian, thank you so much for being on the show today. It was my absolute pleasure. Thank you, Stuart, for all you do. Lives is brought to you on KIOS Omaha Public Radio and is produced by Courtney Beerman. The music you hear playing in and playing out is performed by Andrew Bailey. Podcasts of today's show and others can be found at livesradioshow.com or where you get your podcasts. Subscribe today and please leave a review. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week as we delve further into the practical and profound possibilities of living well. Thanks for listening.